from our epistle reading today. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've always appreciated the church calendar. Uh, there's a stability to it that cuts through all the, all the other competing calendars in my life. Uh, no matter what's going on in the academic calendar or the fiscal calendar or even the COVID calendar, the church's calendar marches on, ever uh, progressing in its cycle of discipling followers of Christ. And homiletically, too, I've appreciated the church calendar and the lectionary readings. I've always thought that on a Sunday morning, if the congregation is going to hear an Old Testament reading, a psalm, an epistle, and a bit from one of the Gospels, um, then the preacher should say something about those readings. And so I've always welcomed the challenge of thinking through, trying to discern what God is saying here and now in conversation with these bedrock elements like the church calendar and the Sunday morning lectionary. And this past week, these past two weeks, have, like pretty much everything in 2020, simply been rather unprecedented in most of our lifetimes. Uh, the spotlight that has been cast on this country's history and present of Racial inequality and injustice, I think, has rocked many of us, and I think it's rightfully rocked us. And the, the instability that we feel, that I feel, is rightfully indicative of, of a growing awareness of the injustices that have facilitated a, a false sense of stability among many of us who are a part of the majority culture. And the spotlight is rightfully motivating many across the country to, to do something about it. I think there are many, many things that we in the majority culture can do as individuals, as citizens, as families, even as a parish and a diocese. And, and I hope that in the days and weeks and months and even years to come, we can listen and learn from people of color as to what the most helpful, practical, concrete steps are that we can take in what spheres of influence we may have. I want to suggest that the, the problems, the challenges that we as a society, we as a country face, need to be addressed on, on multiple levels. There are, there are very detailed, very concrete, very downstream, so to speak, uh, uh, ways to address uh, racial inequalities and racial injustices and et cetera that have, have plagued this nation. And there are also other levels, perhaps more abstract, more broad, more upstream, so to speak, that also come into play in how we engage with the world. Today is Trinity Sunday, the one Sunday of the year where a theological doctrine not an event or a person, is the commemoration of the day. And I would contend on this day that one of the problems that we face at present is a crisis in our view of God. One's view of God is one of the most fundamental, one of the most upstream, or one of the most bedrock, to switch metaphors, one of the most foundational ideas that we have. And if we want to address injustices, 
we need to think rightly about our God who is justice itself. So not to discount practical downstream attempts to address our problems, but to take a both-and approach. In addition to concrete plans, we also need to diagnose our culture's problems upstream or on the foundational level. I think we humans can do this. We have the ability to operate on multiple levels simultaneously, and we do this all the time. We need to both work on concrete practical solutions, and I think we need to relearn the doctrine that's at the heart of today's service. God as triune. Now, of course, I'm not saying just believe in the Trinity and all our problems are going to go away. Well, of course not. I'm saying both and, upstream and downstream. Uh, a lot can go wrong when one is constructing one's worldview, and a sure foundation is no guarantee that things won't go awry elsewhere. What I'm suggesting is that a, a fully orbed, multi-level approach to addressing uh, racial injustices and inequalities. In this process, one's doctrine of God needs to be part of the conversation. And that's what we focus on today. And so we turn to our first reading, our first reading from the prologue of Genesis. Why? What's the purpose on a day like today for hearing these familiar words in the beginning? You know, think about the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What's this first part of Genesis about? What's this confession in the Creed about? At least so I think, uh, Genesis 1 is not primarily trying to give a play-by-play -play of how various plants and animals came about. Primarily, I think, Genesis 1 is making an argument. It's an argument about which God to serve, and why. Just if we can kind of think about the context in which Genesis was composed, there are, there are a lot of gods on offer, a lot of gods available in the ancient Near East. You know, you got your Mardukes, you got your Baals. Everyone's got a God to serve. And this people of Israel, they've got a God too. The Lord God, Hashem God. What's so different about the God of Israel? Well, I think the argument of Genesis 1 goes like this. This God, our God, is the one true God who made everything by simply speaking it forth. And I think like our ancient Israelite ancestors, we have a lot of gods on offer in the marketplace of ideas in 21st century North America. Some of the gods on offer are blatantly idolatrous, the almighty dollar, the vanity of likes, the intoxicating allure of power. But some competitor gods to the one true God are more, more subtle, but perhaps more pernicious. I think perhaps that one of the gods on offer in contemporary America is what we might call a deist god. Recall deism from your history or philosophy classes? The god of deism is the god of some of our nation's founding fathers, like Thomas Jefferson. Uh, a deist conception of God has God as initially setting the world in motion, but then kicking back and letting it do its thing with little to no concern for what actually happens in the universe that God made. This is an aloof god, an uncaring god, a disengaged god. But I think it's a conception of God that permeates our culture. Sure, people believe in God, 
And God, and God we trust, it says on our money, doesn't it? But God helps them who help themselves. Isn't that how the creed of popular deism goes? If God is actually as disengaged as people perhaps subconsciously think, well then consciously, everything actually depends on me. I've got to do it. I've got to get what's good for the taking. I'm not going to let anyone have anything. God's out there unconcerned with anything about going on with me. I've got to do it myself. But I think this is a scary place. This is a scary place cognitively. If you think that God is just out there not caring, well, who's looking out for you in the world? Who's taking care of you? No one. It's just you. And our world is a scary place. We moderns might not face lions and tigers and bears, but we can face a car accident and cancer or a novel coronavirus. Our lives could be snuffed out in a heartbeat, and this is scary. And if you don't think there is a God out there who cares, and you've only got yourself to look out for you, then you might think that perhaps you ought to band together with other scared people in a scary world. And how are you going to band together with other scared people? Well, it sure looks like race is one way that people in this country have banded together. It's not worked out that well for those who aren't in the majority. A distant, deist conception of God, I think, can lead to a fear-based engagement with the world. But the triune God of Christianity, the God of Genesis 1, is not characterized like this at all. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us at least three things about our God. It tells us first that God has infinite power. He is God the Father Almighty, that is, with all the might. God simply speaks forth, and, and the entire universe is, is brought forth out of nothing. Secondly, we learn from Genesis 1 in the Creed that the universe has a personal cause. The universe is not at bottom random or mechanical or impersonal, rather God the Father Almighty has brought all the universe forth by his loving word. And thirdly, we learn that the creation of the world, and thus the creation of all that now exists, was intentional. God wanted to bring about animals on the land, and God brought them about. God wanted to bring about fish in the sea, and God brought them about. God wanted to bring about humans, and God brought them about. And all that God brought about was done so intentionally. And I think this is indicative of God's love for us, so we need not fear. Or hear what Paul says in our epistle reading today. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? The God of deism is a far-off, distant, unconcerned with you or what you need kind of God. And a foundational belief like this would reasonably lead one to feel fear and anxiety and thus be unwilling to look for the good of someone unlike themselves. In the Christian conception, God the Father Almighty powerfully, personally, and intentionally created you and me and every single other human being. But Christianity teaches not just a creator God, but even a God who comes to be so intimately connected to us that he becomes one of us and even lives inside of us. 
The second person of the Trinity did not fear stepping down from his rightfully exalted status, but instead, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he took on the form of a servant in the incarnation. He didn't have to assert his fundamental right as God. Rather, God in Christ stood not distant and aloof. In fact, how not aloof is the God of Christianity? God actually reaches out across the creator-creation divide to be so joined together with a part of creation that is the human nature of the second person of the Trinity that Jesus Christ becomes Emmanuel, God with us, not God aloof, not God leaving you to fend for yourself, God with us and in us. And if God is with us and in us, what is there really to fear? As the baptismal formula from our gospel reading has it, the God of Christianity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that member of the Trinity that has been the, the purview of recent focus on the church calendar. We prayed on the Sunday after Ascension that God would not leave us comfortless, but would send the Holy Spirit to comfort us. We commemorated last Sunday the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost. If an alternative conception of God is one who is far off and aloof, one that sparks fear and thus competition, the God of Christianity, as seen in the Holy Spirit, is a God who is with us to comfort us. Now, we all want comfort, right? Well, yes, but we're often, I think, chasing after a fake comfort, a faux comfort. A comfort just to get out of the fear we have of our own lives. The kind of comfort that for us in the majority culture is built on the foundations of injustices and ends up being manifested in our own hedonisms. This is not the comfort the Holy Spirit brings. The comfort the Spirit brings is aligned with the fact that the Spirit is also called the Spirit of Truth. And the truth is, that you and I were intentionally made by God. And the truth is that Christ became a human being like you and I to save us, to be in us, and that this will endure forever. This is a true comfort, a comfort that actually comforts. And so an underlying motif of what I think our doctrine of God gets us is an alleviation of fear. But this is not like a Oh, don't be afraid. God loves you, so feel warm and fuzzy about yourself. I think this is a, God is triune, so don't be afraid to give, up, to give up your privileged status. God is triune, so don't be afraid to speak up against racial injustice. God is triune, so don't be afraid to sacrifice your own self, your own faux comfort for the good of others. God is triune, so don't be afraid to put in the hard, long work of taking the practical, concrete steps towards racial justice. A robust sense of God's love and care for us ought to provide the upstream context for all the downstream, concrete steps we in the majority culture need to take to address generations of injustice. I want to end with a snippet from our collect this morning, which I hope can be uh, a catalyst to endure as we attempt to move from the upstream to the downstream. Lots of people wonder if 
the sudden spotlight that's presently shining on racial issues in America will be but a, a flash in the pan that won't bring about lasting change. I wonder the same thing myself. But our collect has this line in it. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. This line is a request for help from God to keep steadfast, to, to keep at it, to not just flash in the pan, but to continue a long-lasting burn. We ask for help from God to keep steadfast in the worship of the triune God and to keep steadfast in keeping in mind the implications this has for our ability to live without fear and to sacrifice without fear. But do you note the expiration date on this request? It's at the last. Uh, that means we can stop keeping at this when either we die or Christ returns. And this is why we have to constantly pray, as the colic does, to keep steadfast in this faith and worship. This is not just a request for this one Sunday per year. This is a request for every day of every year, for every day for the rest of our lives, for every day for every person, until we are all brought at the last, to see God in God's one and eternal glory. Amen.